as we come to this scripture. Father in heaven, we're grateful uh, uh, for our church. We're grateful for how you're building us. We're grateful that we have, that we do come together. Set aside all kinds of differences, perhaps, and so forth and so on. But God, we come together um, to serve you. Um, We trust out of our fear, this good, godly, reverent awe, fear that loves you because we know who you are. And thanks for the opportunity of, of sharing all of this with our kids this week. And now we pray as we come to the scripture that you would continue to build us up as a church so that we can bless others with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Nehemiah in chapter five, Old Testament book, Nehemiah chapter five, please. This is the word of the Lord, verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother, And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, uh, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. But their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquainted and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that we were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. You know, the scripture tells us uh, in the New Testament why, in a sense, we have the Old Testament. It doesn't tell us an exhaustion, uh, every point that can be made. But in, in Romans, in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we're to read these Old Testament passages uh, to give us hope, and they do. I trust, uh, at least for me, I trust for you too, that we've received great hope uh, by reading so far through this Old Testament book of, of Nehemiah. Now, these first five chapters, four of them, we've discussed one today. But, but, but the sense of hope, because what, we, what gives us hope is that we realize that God will fulfill his promises. That's what we're seeing here. He made a promise to bring a Messiah through the seed of Abraham, and he's keeping Abraham's seed. He's keeping this nation, and, and nothing can thwart him. The sin of the people can't thwart him. Uh, the, the rule of foreigners can't thwart him. And in fact, he'll even use them as he used Cyrus, the Persian king, to send the people home from exile. He'll even use them as he used the king Artaxerxes to grant this helpless slave, cupbearer to the king Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls. And so we're seeing that, and I hope that gives hope. And, and last week, even with this opposition from outside, and, and we learn, of course, in our own lives as believers in Jesus, that there'll be opposition uh, to the gospel, that we needn't be afraid, because they could say simply, uh, remember God. <laughs> He'll fight for us. And that gave them hope to carry on, to persevere in the midst of opposition, and for us, I trust, as well. There's another passage about the Old Testament uh, in the New as well. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, and verse 6, we read this. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you uh, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, so these situations happen in the old covenant, and they're recorded for us as an example, really as warnings to us. Don't be involved in the evil they were involved in. And that's what we have in this passage. A warning, but also, I think, through it all, a great hope. Because you see, the opposition now is coming from within. It wasn't simply the opposition from outsiders, but there were problems on the inside with the people. Now, if you remember the situation, just very quickly, in 539 B.C., Cyrus was the king of Persia, gave an edict to the 
Israelite exiles who were in the land he had conquered. He gave an edict. He said, you can go back. And so the exiles started back. Um, After a while, uh, the temple was rebuilt. And now it's 445 BC. Remember, we go down in numbers when we do the whole BC thing. So we go from 539 to 445, 90-ish years. Uh, And now Nehemiah has come back to fortify the city. And remember, he's doing this not just to build walls so it's pretty, but to build walls so the city's safe, but not so just the city's safe, but so that the people can worship and develop the culture as the people of God within Jerusalem, right? To the glory of God. This is the city of the great king. And so, so that's what's happening there. He's, he's seeing beyond these walls and he's, he's really building this gathering, this assembly, this church of people in the city of Jerusalem. That's, that's the long-term uh, view of this. And, and so he goes back to rebuild the walls. And so, so there were people already in Jerusalem, those who hadn't been exiled, those who were left. And now the exiles return, and so there's been decades now for, for this culture, in some sense, to build up and people to relate to each other. And just like in all situations, some have done better financially and others not so good. And so that's the situation Nehemiah comes into when he comes back to have the walls rebuilt. Now in, in chapter In chapter three, we get this great sense of the people working together. Chapter four, we said, ah, it wasn't so sweet. There was opposition they had to deal with in the midst of all that. And now we see this internal strife, the internal difficulties. Because you can only imagine that in order for the people to rebuild walls, like the perfumers and the goldsmiths, the people who weren't normally builders and all that, they had to stop doing their regular work. And if you lived in a society, if you were of the household, a household that every day you earned enough for that day, and you stopped earning enough for that day, then you would pretty soon find your cupboards bare. And not only that, but there had been a famine, that is to say there had been, we don't know how many bad harvests in a row. And so people's supplies were low, as well. And so you get the moms crying out, how am I going to feed my family? And they say, well, look at what ha- what's happening. Some of us who have land are mortgaging it to the hilt. And, and paying, it seems, exorbitant amounts of interest. Others are receiving loans and, and, and again, having to pay that back at rates that, that might be a bit higher than they ought to be, if you will. Uh, and, and, and now we're selling our kids into slavery, uh, Now, remember, the slavery in ancient Israel was different than what we have experienced in our experience. It was kind of a welfare system, but but there were rules about it. If you'll turn very quickly, if you want to, that'll read it to you. Deuteronomy in chapter 15, this is one of the areas in the Old Testament where we learn about how, how people in need were to be treated in, in Israel. Because remember, Israel was not simply a nation It was a nation of brothers and sisters. It was a family. They had all descended, if you will, except for the foreigners that had bumped in from time to time. They had all descended from Abraham. And so they knew themselves very well to be not simply a nation of people, but a nation of brothers. And that made a huge difference because these two were the people of God. So verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. 
at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So in the seventh year, if, you, uh, if someone owed you money, you release them from the debt every seventh year. It may be that you just made them the loan last year. You go, whoops. <laughs> but he says, no, 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 that's okay. God will bless you. That's how we're to operate with one another so that no one is in any long-term debt, right? Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother at hand, you shall release. But there shall be no poor among you. I mean, that was the, the goal of it. In the family, there was to be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord uh, your God is giving you for an inheritance. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. Be careful to do all this uh, commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So you can see the, the blessing of says, follow this, love one another. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, uh, and, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there shall never cease to be poor in the land, Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. And so you get it, all right? So you get, there was a situation where we're building the wall. So we have, in some sense, even a good reason to be out of food. And there are some with food and who could help, but they're exploiting. They're taking advantage of the situation. And, and, and the Lord says, it's okay to lend, right? But lend generously not at great interest. We'll find even Nehemiah was doing that. He was lending, and we'll see how he responded. And then concerning slavery, verse 12 of Deuteronomy 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, and he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh you shall let him go free. All right? And so if there's a poor family, and, and they need welfare, we would call it, right? Help. They're allowed to indenture their children, or even adults, to another as slaves. But these slaves are to be treated well. And again, at the end of the seventh year, they're to be set free, all right? Now notice, verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, and then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost 
of a hired worker. He has served you six years, so the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. And so even when the slave is set free, he's, he's given enough so that he won't fall back into poverty. And so, so that's the humaneness of all of this. But it wasn't happening like that in these days. And you would think, especially in these days, when the people were gathering to do the work of the Lord, you would expect those who have to give to those who don't and to give generously and freely. And yet they were exploiting the situation. That's what's happening. So you can only imagine that the, these people who are running out of food are gonna say, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna work anymore. And Nehemiah is going, wait a minute, I came back to rebuild this wall. What do you mean? I need you to work. But that wasn't his biggest issue. His biggest issue, he knew that the enemies around Jerusalem would taunt them because they knew they were to behave better than that. And they would say, look at those Israelites. They're acting just like us. They're exploiting their poor brothers. And they're supposed to be the people of God. And Nehemiah really knew that what he was building in Jerusalem was not a wall, but a people. Some years ago, goodness, 22 now, I was on one of the assignments that I go on from time to time. Uh, There was a church in our denomination that uh, needed a pastor. Their pastor had just taken another position, and this particular pastor had come and he, had, he, had, he was a church planter, and so the church started from scratch and built it up, and they had built this really nice facility and had a sufficient number of people to be self-sustaining, and he wanted to go on and plant another church, which was fine. And so the church, he asked me, and the church asked me to come and just consult with the pastor search committee. And so I sat down with the pastor search committee, uh, but it was one of those occasions where I uh, took one of my kids, so I, I took my 10-year-old daughter, Sarah. Don't tell her. I'm telling this story. Um, but uh, I took my daughter, Sarah, and it was hilarious. I'll never forget. Because she um, had been taught to crochet by one of the older women in our church. And so there she was. You can picture her. I'm in a meeting of about 15 people. And there's my little daughter over there sitting in the corner crocheting. <laughs> it was hilarious. And... Uh, But when I opened the meeting, I realized these people weren't together at all. They were at tremendous odds with each other on who their church really was, what the vision for the church was, what kind of pastor they wanted. I had thought, man, this is going to be a breeze. They'll buy me a nice dinner. I'll be able to spend a a little bit of time with Sarah. It'll be great. And I find myself in this huge controversy with these people. It took me about three hours just to settle it all down and to kind of come up with some sort of plan by which they could work together to search a new pastor. And so we're leaving the church, and I'm exhausted and spent, and my little Sarah looks up to me and said, Dad, you know what the problem is? That wasn't unusual, by the way, for her to school me uh, about various things. But she said, Dad, you know what the problem is? They build a building, but they never build a church. And oh, yeah. And Nehemiah didn't want to just build walls, right? He wanted to build a church. So this issue may have been more disheartening and more significant to him to deal with than even the outside opposition because they weren't behaving, if you will, like a church. So Nehemiah calls for radical repentance. Radical repentance. And, 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 and so they do. And he says, I, I want to impose the seven-year rule right now. 
May not be the seventh year, but I want to impose it right now. If you've lent money uh, to someone and they owe you, cancel the debt. If you've taken somebody's property, give it back. We're starting over right now. And we're going to behave like the people of God. You know, this opposition from within has really plagued the church from the beginning. We see it here. We saw it all the way back in the days of Moses. You remember that, 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 that they handled the external uh, opposition fairly well. At least God did, like he opened the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And he won battles for them and they prayed and all of that. But it was the internal stuff. It was the grumbling of the people against the leadership, against Moses, that really was the huge issue. Really was the thing that got to God. It's really the thing that caused him to open up the earth and swallow some of them. That sort of thing, bring a plague against them. Because he says, you're not behaving like my people. We, we, we see it uh, even, even with the disciples of Jesus. It always astounds me every time I read it every Holy Week that during uh, the time when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, that night we refer to as Monday Thursday, that time was the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's disciples, the disciples of Jesus, got into an argument about who was the greatest. Among them, they were sort of missing the point. I mean, how do you argue who's the greatest when Jesus is in the room? Uh, and, and you're saying who among us is great, you know? And Jesus, in that sense, says, none of you. Um, in fact, I'm a servant of you all. What should you be? Uh, we, we see it in the church, in the early church. We, as we read through the book of Acts, we find early on, Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira lying. And so we have... Uh, Believers telling lies to one another. In chapter 6, we, we find the widows unhappy and grumbling about the food distribution. And you go, well, that seems not to be a big deal. But the apostles stopped everything and created this new office in the church called deacon uh, so that they could take care of this situation because the apostle says, said that if we do this, it'll keep us from praying and teaching and that'll slow down the work of the gospel. And so just like the people's uh, immorality and in, in Nehemiah's day and exploiting the poor would stop the work on the walls, uh, they said this would stop the spread of the gospel, just this grumbling within. As we read through the letters in the New Testament, we find over and over again the apostles having to deal with difficulties in the church. In the church in Rome, for instance, there was this debate between what Paul called the strong ones and the weak ones about disputable matters. And disputable matters are matters that don't matter but yet they were fighting about them and splitting over them. The strong said, we have the freedom to do this. The weak said, we don't. And Paul said, act like Jesus. Act like you belong to him. And, and, and so you strong ones, don't do anything. Don't use your freedom in such a way that will cause the, the, the weak ones to stumble in their faith. And you weak ones, stop judging them. And so you get this sense of, of, of people humbly coming together to really love each other and treat one another as God commands us. I mean, let's face it, the church in Corinth, we could stay here all day. I mean, they were a mess. I mean, they, their pride caused them to split uh, in terms of uh, one another saying, no, I follow the apostle Peter's teaching. I follow the apostle Paul's teaching. No, I'm so good. I follow Christ's teaching. And, 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 and Paul had to say, well, wait a minute, who died for you? Right? And there were lawsuits one against another. They couldn't get along, couldn't solve their differences among themselves that they took it outside the church into to the law courts. Um, we, we find um, that 
There was even problems at the Lord's Supper. People were excluding certain ones from the Lord's Supper. Others were getting drunk at the Lord's table. As a young Presbyterian little boy, I wondered, how did that happen? Because all we got were little thimbles full. They'd quit after a while before they got drunk. It's out of exhaustion. But, but you know, you get the picture. They were, they were, they were, they were uh, extravagant and taking so that others couldn't. Even at the Lord's Supper, we know the issues they had with spiritual gifts of competition, one with another mind's better than yours, and the circus that would take place when they would gather to worship, and all those kinds of, of issues. We read the other letters. We read about gossip in the church and slander in the church and unforgiveness in the church that leads to bitterness one over another. We, we read uh, that they weren't accepting one another as Jesus had accepted them, uh, that we saw that they were angry with one another when they shouldn't have been. All those kinds of things within the church, and what that means is it's slowing down the work. We're not building up, we're building down, if you will. We're not adding, we're subtracting. And, and so that's significant in this life of ours of building up the church. And so the question is, how is it that Nehemiah could appeal to this people? On what, on what basis? Well, you'll notice in verse, in verse nine, he said, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, uh, our enemies. And then in verse 15, as he describes his own life, he says this, he says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And that's the real sense of it, isn't it? This notion of the fear of God. John Murray, um, a mid-last century theologian, um, wrote a book, uh, many of them, but one of them, is called The Principles of Conduct. And in this book, he bases all of our conduct on the fear of God. In fact, he says this. He says, the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. I think that ought to be in the Bible. It's not quite like that in the Bible, but it's really good, I think. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. In other words, it's the foundation of, it's the ground of our godliness is the fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there will be no godliness. Now, there's a couple of senses we know. We talk about this from time to time. There are a couple of senses in which we use the, the term the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. One is the sense of being afraid of, that is, this being in terror because of God and his holiness and who he is. In fact, Murray, in one of his chapters, asks this question. He says, is it proper to be afraid of God? The only proper answer is that it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. So there could be reason to be afraid of God. You remember when Adam sinned, he ran from God. And why did he run from God? He said, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. You see, sin makes us afraid and it makes us afraid of God because we know that he is holy and that he is just. And there's something within us. I really believe this is true of the most hardened atheist. There's something within us that says to us, 
I'm a sinner and God is holy and thus I fall under his judgment. Now we suppress that as hard as we can perhaps, but it's there still in us to know that God is holy and we are not and that we fall under his judgment. You remember what Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can simply kill, they take the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And we go, and we should. There should be a bit of a shudder there in the midst of that. I go back to this again every Holy Week when I see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane uh, uh, praying and, and sweating blood. Why? There have been many people who have faced their death bravely without such a display. But there, Jesus, as us, as our representative before God, was facing the wrath of God for us. And thus his response in the garden that night, take this cup from me, this deep, deep, deep emotion was based on the fact that it was a rational response to facing the wrath of God. And there's a sense of that kind of fear if we're going to face the wrath of God. But when Murray speaks about, when Murray speaks about uh, um, this, uh, this, is that a funny sound? That's a funny sound. Anyway, excuse me. Uh, when, when Murray speaks about the fear of God, he not only, he doesn't use it really in this sense of being afraid of God, but it's something that takes away that fear, that being afraid of, but yet puts us in the fear of God in the sense of awe and wonder and worship and love that kind of fear. That's what leads to godliness. And he he puts it like this, if I could just read a, a bit of a paragraph here. He says, the fear of God, which is the soul of godliness, does not consist, however, in the dread which is produced by the apprehension of God's wrath. When the reason for such dread exists, then to be destitute of it is the sign of hardened ungodliness. That is, this sense of of being terrorized, being afraid of God, could only say, I'll obey because if I don't, it'll go poorly for me. Uh, That's not the fear of God that motivates, that brings godliness. He says, here's that fear. But the fear of God, which is the basis of godliness, and in which godliness may be said to consist, is much more inclusive and determinative than the fear of God's judgment. And we must remember that the dread of judgment will never of itself generate within us the love of God or hatred of the sin that makes us liable to his wrath. Even the infliction of wrath will not create the hatred of sin. It will incite to greater love of sin and enmity against God. Punishment has of itself no regenerating or converting power. The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear in which is the fear which constrains adoration and love. It's the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all all of these of the highest level of exercise. It's the reflex of our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. You see, the the fear that that generates godliness is is is, is the fear that says, You're God, and yet you love me. 
I mean, how is this fear um, established in us? Do you remember, do you remember the, the hymn that um, uh, was written by John Newton, the ex-slave captain? Amazing grace. Remember the, the line, "'Twas grace, you know the rest of it, right? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And that's it, isn't it? It's when we get a handle, when we come to really grip the grace of God, when we know the grace of God, that grace is what causes us to worship. That grace is what causes us to love. That grace is, is what causes us to desire the glory of God because look at what he's done. That grace, and we know that grace is unmerited, right? We, we didn't deserve it. That's what's so amazing about it. In fact, we deserve the opposite of it. Our sin uh, should result in God pouring his judgment on us, but yet he doesn't do that because he poured his judgment upon Jesus. And that's the sense of this grace. And when we realize that that, that grace has come to us, then it teaches our heart to worship teaches our heart to be grateful. It teaches our heart to love. It teaches our hearts to desire to please this one who has so loved us and given his son for us. Now, our VBS kids get this. Because what they learned this week is that when we come to Jesus, we bring absolutely nothing. And Jesus brings absolutely everything. Uh, It's like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had a lot of money, but that didn't help him. Uh, He brought absolutely nothing. But Jesus came to him. Our kids learned that Jesus sees us first. Before the foundations of the world, he knows us first before the foundations of the world. And his intent was to come and die for us that he might save us. And then we see that worked out in the lives of those, uh, we sang this this morning, for those he came to save. We see that uh, in, 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 in their lives, in our lives, as the Lord comes to us. And we come to him because he draws us. And we realize I brought nothing to this. He brought everything, right? And then the woman at the well. Here was this woman who was clearly in the minds of everybody a sinner, and yet Jesus comes to her. She thinks all she needs is water, water, but Jesus knows she needs more than that. But she has no way to get it. I mean, she can't even get water, water. She's got to get him to get her water, and and yet he says, hold the phone. I'll give you what you really need. You don't have it. You can't get it. I'll give it to you. And he saw her and he knew her. He gave to her. She received, you see. And then there's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the great teachers of his era, probably. He knew a great deal but yet none of his knowledge helped him enter into the kingdom of heaven because he couldn't bring that. That didn't help him. He brought nothing to the table. 
And that if he was saved, then it was Jesus who did it. And there was the blind man. He, he thought he just needed eyes to see, a physical eyes to see. But, but Jesus said, no, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll give you that. It's not an issue. But, but, but what you really need is spiritual eyes to see that I'm the light of the world. And so he, he comes and he brings nothing. The blind man's blind. He brings nothing. And, and yet Jesus brings him everything. And, and when you get that, I mean, when the blind man got that, he, he just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. It was grace that taught his heart to fear. He says, what do I, I'll follow you anywhere. And then, of course, there were the children. The children may have been the most obvious. The children bring nothing. They're just utterly dependent. If you take especially the infants that were brought to Jesus, uh, they would literally die without somebody helping them and bringing physical and material stuff to them. They would die. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Bring these little ones because I want you to understand that everyone who comes into the kingdom comes just like this, bringing absolutely nothing. And Jesus says, because you don't need anything, I bring it all. All you do is receive it. All you do is receive it. And, and it's even greater than that. And not only to bring we nothing like zero, we bring like negative, Right? We bring, you know, our account isn't just zero, I got nothing. No, 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 you, you got worse than nothing. You've got everything that should cause me to condemn you. But I've got everything that will take care of that because my blood will take care of your sin and my righteousness will take care of all that you need to stand in the presence of God. Wow. Once we get that, then obedience becomes as natural as disobedience once was. Once we get that, it teaches our heart to really fear, to love, to worship, to receive, to live, to obey, right? And then the next line, which is fascinating, I never, honestly never thought about it until yesterday. Uh, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. That's rather confusing. This fear that grace taught me about and brought into my life caused other fears to go away. He was a way better poet than I am a reader of poetry. It just dawned on me, oh yeah, of course. I no longer fear death. But more importantly, I no longer feel life <laughs> because God is with me. One of the great passages, there's a number of them, but since I'm into songs today, I'll, I'll read from um, Isaiah 41, uh, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, uh, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. In other words, he saw them and he knew them, right? And he called them saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a hymn in there somewhere. But, but we get this sense, God says, don't be afraid, why? Because I am with you. And when we get the fact 
that God, God is really with us, then what, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? If God is for me, who can be against me? Right? And, and so for Nehemiah, this played like this, that he didn't have to be afraid of all these rich ones in Jerusalem who were lending like this. He didn't have to think, oh, I better take care of them because they've got all the money. They've got all the land. They've got all the stuff. They've got all the grain. I, I can't really go against them. He says, no, of course I can. I don't need to be afraid of them. Why? Because grace has taught my heart to fear the Lord and to love him. And what I'm building here is a people, and they can't do this. I don't care who they are. I don't need to be afraid. My fear of those in power is now relieved because God is with me. And so he could say, hey, give it all back. He didn't even have to be afraid of his own reputation because verse 10 of Nehemiah 5 says that Nehemiah was even lending, no doubt lending with a good heart, lending in a good way, and then it finally dawned on him, they can't pay me back. That would be a hardship on them to pay me back. So, okay, I'll just give it to you. In fact, and I think these latter verses that I read in, in chapter five out of his memoirs probably weren't public until he wrote them down. I mean, these were just notes, I think. He was, he was writing down about his own life and he says, now this is how I've lived. He wasn't bragging here, but he was saying, out of the fear of the Lord, you know, I sacrificed all that I could sacrifice. And I didn't take all that I could rightfully take. I didn't take what all the governors before me took. And I I fed people at my own table. I gave. Why? Out of the fear of the Lord. Because I loved him. And what was more important to me was his work and what was going on with his people. I didn't have to worry about what I had or didn't have by way of prestige, by way of office, by way of position, by way of money. I didn't have to worry about that because God was with me. And those fears were, in fact, relieved. That's it, you see. We must really pray, and as we read the scripture, ask that God would enable us to see the grace we have received. Let's face it. We talk about it so much. We sing about it so much. We live in America, so our lives are relatively good, by and large. We have stuff. We have friends. Even on a bad day, it might be better than most we know throughout history have experienced. And it's really, really easy to forget that it's by grace and grace alone, through Christ alone. And so we must every day pray that God would remind us, would capture us again with his grace, that that grace would teach our hearts to fear and then all of our other fears would be relieved because once we really grasp the fact that God is really with us and that he really is our God and we really do belong to him. And I say all this, trust me, I'll forget this by three o'clock this afternoon unless I really consciously think about it. So, so I'm not just, boom, you know, blowing smoke here. This is true. We, 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 this is just true of us, right? And so we really, really, really need to be reminded 
as we come to the scripture often, as we pray often that God would help us, as we meet with one another often, that God, we would be reminded that it really is by grace and that we really do belong to him and he really is with us. Because that grace will teach our heart to fear and that grace will relieve all other fears. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that this would really be true. Help us. I pray for our kids this week again that, wow, that, that they would really, I mean, it was, we were, it was so fun, but yet that they would also really see that Jesus, you really do see them, know them, have died, that they might receive. Please help them to know this grace, even at young, young ages, so that their hearts would be taught to fear and their fears relieved. And for us, God, that that would be the case, that we wouldn't fear death, that we wouldn't fear illness, that we wouldn't fear political demise, that we wouldn't fear economic downturns, that we wouldn't fear what we don't have, that we wouldn't fear those who... Uh, seem to have authority over us, but we know you ultimately have authority over us. But rather we would fear you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As I do, I remind you there'll be elders available to pray, so please come. If you have particular needs, they'll be up here to my, these pews to my left. And also remember, you know, 20 bucks, I hate to, you know, keep bugging you about this, but 20 bucks gets a guy from Ethiopia, a pastor, to a conference that will be a great blessing to him for two weeks. And uh, just ask yourself, what am I doing with that 20 bucks better than that? And then, and then go for it. So if you have money today, do it. Let's get it done. If, if not, send it in somehow quickly. We want to get this done. So by the time Dan leaves, we'll know what, 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 what the needs are. So... Bless you in that. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now, who is, to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine, through his power that is at work within us, Tim be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and always. And together let us sing. <clears throat>